In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it says this. It says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, Paul actually speaks on this issue. He says, now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you, and by the way, it says each one of you. It doesn't say the rich or the wealthy or those who are well-to-do. It says each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. I don't want to come knocking door to door and say, hey, where's your money? Kind of a mindset. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of instruction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, for those who've been here at Discover for a while, you know that I am not a big fan of pastors who constantly talk about money. Okay, like I said, it's been actually five years since I dealt with this subject matter. But there are a lot of people who deal with it on a constant basis. Many times, it's to provide the church uh, with its basic necessities, but other times it is not. They constantly hound people for money uh, outside of things like, you know, we all know we all have rent, we all have electricity, we, we have insurance, right? We have supplies at the church, we have salaries, we have children's curriculum, we have food, you name it, we have all those things, right? But for some people, instead of those things, they want to fund some pet project or something, you know, a bunch of guys put together behind closed doors. Typically speaking, they will, for months on end, ask the people to give, and I quote, over and above. How many people have heard that term? I want you to give over and above. You've heard that term right? They want people to give over and above their normal offering in order to purchase this or to build that. And unfortunately, many times, it is in the form of manipulation. I've heard stories of pastors passing the plate over and over and over until they basically guilt you into giving whatever the amount that they want. Many years ago, a, a good friend of mine uh, checked out a local church here in Lynchburg. He drove by the church every single day, and he was curious, and so one day he just decided to go there. And when it came to the time to collect the offering plate, the person who went up front, and sometimes in churches people go up front and pray for the offering and whatnot, the person who went up front basically gave the entire congregation a once-over and called every one of them a bunch of Judases if they did not give what he thought that they should give. Well, that's a way of getting at people, right? In my friend's view, he basically threatened the people in order to get all the money that they wanted. Now, when you hear of stories like this, or say you, 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 you visit a church every week, and they're pressuring you for more money and more money and more money, or you hear of a church, maybe that pays their pastor a, a six-figure salary when it's totally out of line with their geographical area or the amount of people who attend. 
Or even you watch these thieves, and trust me, they are, these thieves on TBN who literally manipulate you into thinking that the more you give, the richer that you will be. When you hear lots of things like this, for many people, it, it turns them off on their giving. It brings them to the point, really, where there's a lack of trust. They come to believe that most churches abuse the Lord's money. They overpay themselves. They, they falsify the numbers, or, or they just you know, build on their dream building. They build on the backs of the congregants, whether they can afford it or not. Now, on the other side of the monetary coin, there are those who do not support the church because they either don't trust God, they are simply unwilling to give because, and I'll be clear, because they're moochers, I just want to be clear with that, they always want something for nothing. They want others to pay. They want others to give. There are those people. Or they simply love their lifestyle more than the church. And by the way, loving a lifestyle does not mean you have to live in, you know, lavishly. It's like having the love of money. Does Loving the money doesn't mean you're rich, right? You just, whatever lifestyle you have, you want to continue to support that because if you give to the church, in your mind you feel you won't have that money in there. You can't live the way you want to live. Well, this morning as we look at some scriptures on giving, I'm going to leave it up to you to see if you fit into any category. Now, for some of you, for many of you here, um, you don't fit into any of them. For some of you, um, you have no problems supporting the local church. You love the Lord, you love the church, and you understand it's our responsibility as the church to provide for the church. Many of you, I do understand, get that. Now, in saying all this, I want to draw from two sets of scriptures today. The first one is going to be one that, well, both of them probably ones that you know of. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 3. I want to just pull some of the principles out of here. As you'll hear in my sermon, as you know, our study in Romans, we are not under the law, but there are some, some good principles that we can pull from here. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12 Last book of the Old Testament. Chapter 3, starting in verse 6, it says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away my from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob God? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, 
and the vines in your field will not cast their fruit. In other words, they won't just fall to the ground. Says the Lord Almighty, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. And so going back here, starting here at beginning in verses 6 and 7, the Lord begins and saying here in so many words, you Israel ought to be thankful. Okay? If I was a God who changes, you would have been destroyed by now. In other words, if it wasn't for my unending mercy, you guys would have been extinct. Okay? Now you ask the question, why is that? Well, he says it here at the very beginning of verse 7. He says, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Now, for those of you who have ever spent any amount of time in the Old Testament, you know that the history of Israel is not uh, a record of ever-increasing faithfulness. You know that. And therefore, Malachi right here gives a blanket condemnation of Israel's disobedience to God's decrees throughout their history. Notice the words he uses. He says, from the time of your forefathers. Okay? Listen to what Moses, or I'm sorry, listen to what God said to Moses as early as Mount Sinai. So this is taking place in the Exodus. In Exodus 32, verses 7 through 9. It says, the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and they are a hard people, or if you will, they are an obstinate people. Later on, as they entered into the promised land, Moses chastised them as well. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. It's not because you're so faithful and so awesome, right? For you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. Folks, just, just reading those few verses, Malachi's point here back in verse 7 is inarguable. Okay, And therefore, what he does is he appeals to Israel with a promise. The second part here in verse 7 says, Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. So basically, he's saying that if Israel would repent, if they would turn back to the Lord in faith and in their obedience, he would respond to them yet again. Now, this is basically, 
the covenant that God made with Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. At the end of this section, he says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by an oath. So no different than God today, he is always ready to forgive. He's always ready to offer up his mercy to those who repent of their ways and begin to follow him. Now, based upon this next comment, and actually the one to follow, Israel at this point didn't even think there was an issue. Okay? It's as if to say, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? This is kind of how they react here. Look at the last part, just the very last part here in verse 7. He says, but you ask, this is meaning you, the Israelites, but you ask, how are we to return? <laughs> in other words, what's the problem? We haven't done anything, right? They act like they're oblivious to it all. The New Living Translation phrases it this way. It says, how can we return when we have never gone away? That's how belligerent these people were to the ways of God. They didn't get it at all. And so in response to Israel's doubt, Malachi chooses from what I can only imagine, folks, is a complete list of things. He happens to choose the issue of their giving or lack thereof. But trust me, there was a list of things that he could have talked about. Okay, But he says here in verses 8 and 9, he says, will a man rob God? He says, yet you rob me. Once again, but you ask, well, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe. Whoops, let me see here. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I read a little ahead there. but So Israel, as we can see from verses 8 and 9, has, been prov- has not been providing the funds to support the nation. Remember, the nation was a theocracy, right? It, God is their king, right? It's, you, you might think of all the Muslim nations, everything, their entire government, their beliefs, their religion, uh, what goes on every day in everybody's lives is run uh, according to Islam, okay? It is, in, in that sense, a theocracy. But here, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. So those tithes and offerings, which, by the way, was a form of a tax, okay, they were used to, for, number one, to support the temple. They were used to support the animals. Folks, they sacrificed a lot of animals, okay? They were used for grain. Uh, they were used to provide for the priest. Anything functioning there at the temple was to come out of that tithe, okay? In the second tithe, if that's shocking to you, I want you to understand that Israel was, uh, was commanded to tithe three times, okay? Not just once, but 
three times. So in the second tithe, that money would go for all the religious festivals. As you guys know, there was a lot of those. Okay, God had required them. And lastly, the third tithe, which was every three years, okay, it went to the poor. Deuteronomy chapter 14 calls them the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows. Okay, that money would go to support the poor. And there are also other, other laws where, as far as gleaning the fields and things like that, like you might think of Ruth, where people uh, were to allow the poor uh, to survive. But all of these, uh, we'll call them monies, because a lot of times it wasn't necessarily cash or writing a check, obviously. But for all these monies, for Israel's religious system to function, were being withheld by the people. The things they needed for the theocracy, their government, the temple, the poor, everything they did, the, the, the funds, if you will, were not being provided for, even though these are the people who would stand proud and say, we are the Lord's people, we are God's chosen people. Yet they weren't providing at all. Those very same people, they wanted all of the benefits. Trust me, they loved the temple. They loved the temple, right? The sacrifices, those were important to them. All of these festivals that they had, we think of some of them, right? The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths and Passover and things like that. They loved all of these things, but they didn't want to contribute what it took to provide for them. They wanted all that, you know, Israel had to offer as long as somebody else paid for it. In my opinion, really, folks, it's really no different than the mindset of today's 21st century church. The church today has a mindset of take, 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 and not give. And these are usually, usually the very same people who are going up to uh, the leadership and saying, hey, how come the church doesn't fund A, B, or C? How come the church doesn't do this or have this program or, or have this and that? And they're the very ones who don't fund the church as it is, and they're wondering why the church doesn't do more. It's always that catch for some reason. They don't give anything to support the church, and yet they wonder why the church isn't giving to do more. You see, folks, the heart of sinful man, whether it be all the way back here in Malachi or it's today, it has never changed. The sinfulness of man doesn't change. They want everything without giving anything. We call that the welfare system, by the way. People want everything without giving anything. And then secondly, the funding of their lifestyle is more important than their support of the local church. You know what, Darren? You said that twice today already. What do you mean by that? Well, it's very simple, really. All of us have to fund, every one of us in this room have to fund the basic necessities of life, right? Mortgage, rent, property tax, gas, your car, many different kinds of insurances, your food, tires, a new lawnmower. It doesn't matter. You just pick it up. There's all kinds of things we have. All of us have the basic necessities. But after those, we all choose what to do with our money. All of us do, right? And everybody's a little bit different. Some people, it's eat out all the time. Some people, it's, it's, uh, it's gifts. It's new clothes. 
It's uh, you know, buying new furniture every two years, right? It's buying, uh, leasing a car and getting a new one every two years. Everybody has their thing. Everybody does. It doesn't matter what it is. But the church must be in that list as well. Whatever that list is at your household, the church must be in that list as well. And by the way, if you go back to the text here in Malachi, did you notice that the word God uses for those who did not uh, provide the tithes and offerings? Did you see the word that God used? Robbery. Well, that's a little rough, isn't it? Robbery. Since the temple was God's house, verse 10 says it is, verse 10 says it's God's house, failure to support its ministry was considered equal with robbing God himself. That's a little different, of course, than we would phrase it today. For those who don't support the local church today, no different than then. We simply today just pull out our own little trump card and, you know, in our minds, we, we justify why we don't support the church. Everybody has their little card they try to justify. I shouldn't say everybody. Many people have that little card where they feel this is my, my get-out-of-jail-free card, this is my trump card of why I don't. Here's, here's how I justify myself. It might be something like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I just don't make a lot of money. Oh, well, you know, I just moved to a new place and the rent's a lot higher. I bought a brand new car and, of course, you know, interest rates are up and, you know, I, I can't be doing both. Or even the frugal excuse, uh, I'm trying to get out of debt. Well, that's wonderful. I think people should try to get out of debt. But you don't do it at, on the backs of the church. Or I like this one because it sounds very spiritual. You know, I'm supporting my friend's missions trip. Right? There's always that spiritual one we try to use. I can't support the church because I'm supporting my friend's mission. Folks, every one of us in this room, and I literally mean every single one of us, can give an excuse, all of us, as to why our money needs to go somewhere else instead of the support of the local church. Every single one of us in this room can think of something. But as God said to Israel here, no different than God would say today to the church today, it's robbery. It's almost as if God is claiming that money to be his, right? When you think you're robbing God, well, wait a second, how am I robbing God? It hasn't left my wallet. It's as if God is already claiming something to be his. But here's the kicker. Robbing God, in one sense, is like robbing yourself. Notice verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. A lot, as you know, a lot of times they would tithe grain and stuff. Test me in this, says the Lord. And you see if what I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. So by choosing, he says here, not to support the ministry and to live in disobedience, they chose to reject God's blessing. Do you see that? And if you read verse 11, it looks like that in this context anyway, that blessing meant agricultural, or missing that blessing meant agricultural disaster. Okay? 
Which I'm sure, by the way, is that very same curse that's mentioned in verse 9. By robbing God, by not supporting the, the temple ministry, it wasn't just others who missed out, but he says it was themselves. Here, under the Old Testament law and the covenant that God had made with them, God's blessings came through obedience and faithfulness. Okay? And that obedience was simply to give back a portion from what everything God has already provided for them or for you. That was their obedience, their faithfulness, part of it, not all of it, obviously, was to give back to the temple ministry, if you will, as a portion of what God has blessed you with. And here's a part that I really like here in verse 10. God says, go ahead, test me. Test me. It's like he's saying, do, do you not believe my words? Oh, I would never say that. Then trust me. Do you still think I am God? Well, I mean, Lord, of course I know. Then trust me. Have I ever failed you or, or lied to you before? Well, then believe what I'm saying. You ever notice that when it comes to people in the church and maybe even non-Christians? We'll trust God, we'll stand up and say hallelujah and do everything else in a certain text of scripture. Talk about giving, it's like, well, I don't know if I believe that or trust that or hold to that. Oh, we'll do it on the next page, but uh, well, not. we pick and choose subject matters, right? It goes back to what was said in verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you. He says, get your life right. And part of that had to do with giving, not all of it. But he's saying here, get your life right and watch what I do on my part. God says, watch what I will do. Your life won't be perfect. Nobody's life is going to be perfect. But I will honor my covenant with you, he says. Now, Real quick, before I head over to the Gospel of Mark, as to tithing here in the book of Malachi, tithing is just an old English word that means one-tenth. Okay? just means one-tenth. Or just, you want to say 10%, that's fine. Understand, folks, that this pertains to the Old Testament law. Okay? I'm going to say something that you'll probably never hear pastors say today, but I've got to be faithful. I've got to be honest with the Scriptures. In the New Testament, nowhere does it command us to tithe. Nowhere. In the New Testament, there's not a single verse where we are commanded to tithe or commanded to give 10%. And this is, of course, where I have a problem with uh, many pastors who will, on a weekly basis, they will teach grace and God's grace and God's grace. Then all of a sudden, they'll teach on giving, and all of a sudden, now they're going to teach the law. In the blink of an eye, it's like they just switched their theology. I'm going to teach the law as if we're under the law. And you must give 10%. Of course, if you really thought you were under the law, you would give, what, 23% somewhere around there? If you're going to if you're going to tithe three times, triple tithe. If you hold to that, I don't know anybody in the world who says, oh, no, and that still stands for today. Really? Do you, give, do you tithe three times? Well, no. Why not? 
I always love to do that just to mess with people's heads because that's how I roll. But so many people will teach the law when it comes to giving. Now listen, I understand as, as a pastor that uh, you would love to see all the people tithe. I get that. You would love to see all the people tithe. You, folks, listen to me. You'd be amazed what the church could do if everybody gave 10%. You would be shocked what the church could do if everybody gave 10%. But as great as that would be, it cannot be taught as a biblical New Testament command. It cannot. Okay? When I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 16 at the beginning of the sermon, it talked about the collection of God's people on the first day of the week, which you know is Sunday. But you notice it did not mention a percentage. Remember, you won't find anywhere in the New Testament where it mentions a percentage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, it talks about excelling in the grace of giving. Excel in the grace of giving. Once again, there's no percentage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says this, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly and not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That, that verse pretty much says it all right there. Okay? Right there. Now, in saying all that, does that mean tithing is wrong? Does that mean you can't give 10%? Well, no, that would be stupid. Of course you can. People, some people will do more than that if they choose to. Right? It's just not to be taught as an absolute commandment of God for all times. Now, in my opinion, notice I said my opinion, I do think 10% is a good place to start. I do. Sadly, the church today, uh, if you add up everybody, some people do give 10%, some people give 15 some people give 20 and many people give nothing. Some people throw $10 in the plate. It averages out to a little over 2%. Okay? But in my opinion, I think 10% is a good place to start. And by the way, I would not tell you to do anything that I would not do myself. I want you to understand that as well. And important as well is it should be given to the local church. That I hope you understand. Whatever church it is that you're attending, obviously you're here today, but whatever church that you attend, that is where your giving should go. There are, there, there are nothing wrong with parachurch ministries. You know what we call parachurch ministry? Para means alongside Many ministers out there that, that come alongside the church. You think of big ones like you know, maybe Samaritan's Purse or whatever, uh, Gleaning for the World. And there's other great, great ministries out there. Nothing wrong with these, with these ministries. Many of them do great, great work, and they are absolutely worthy of your support. There's no doubt about it. But if any of those ministries are worth their salt, they're going to tell you first to give to your local church. And then after that, we would appreciate your support. That's what's most important, folks. It's your local church. Now, understanding that the giving of our finances is the responsibility of all believers, Old Testament and New Testament, not some believers, but all believers. Turn with me to Mark chapter 
12. Here in this text, in my opinion, is the most important point, and it's the attitude of your heart. The attitude of your heart. It's giving that is truly expressing who you are in here on the inside. It's not just a calculator with a percentage button. It's what's going on in your heart. You get the difference there? Now here in Mark chapter 12 is another very well-known text. And I like it because it's short, it's simple, and it's to the point, right? Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and she put in two very small copper coins, worthy only, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling the disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Now, looking at a, a, a few verses prior to this, verse 35 there, it says that Jesus was teaching at the temple. Okay? Now, I cannot say this for sure, but this was probably in what's called the court of the Gentiles, which is a very large area outside some of the smaller courts. It's probably where he was teaching. Now, from there, Jesus went through one of the nine gates, and he entered to what is known as the court of the women. I know this because verse 41 mentions the temple treasury. When I read that, it says the temple treasury. We know that the temple treasury was inside the court of the women. The treasury was basically 13 trumpet-sized containers. Okay? That was uh, made for offerings, or, or I think it was, um, uh, I'm trying to think. I think it was the Mishnah. If you know the Mishnah, it's inside the Talmud. It says that seven of these containers were marked for uh, the temple tax, and the other six of them were marked for free will offerings. Okay? But these, these trumpet-like containers were all there for people to give. Well, Jesus, as you just read there, is, is watching. He's watching them. He's watching the crowd put their money into the treasury. And by the way, if you want to know why there is a crowd, it's because it's Passover week. Okay? Jews from all over the then known world would come into Jerusalem. So they would come from everywhere to celebrate the Passover. Lots and lots and lots of people were there. And so while watching the crowd, verse 41 says, many rich people threw, threw in large amounts of money. Those words in the Greek, large amounts, it just literally means many. Large amounts just simply means many. Now in this situation, Jesus probably knew that they were rich because of the clothes that they wore. Certainly there was a big difference there. But also because of the many, hence the term, the many copper coins that either he saw or he heard go into that container. You can picture the king, 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 king as it comes down in that container. Now in contrast to the wealthy and their many coins, which is uh, 
typical anyway, because they would usually have more money to give. Verse 42 then says, But a poor widow came, and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. So once again, you'll notice that Jesus notices what she puts in. My guess is, once again, uh, that her dress probably was kind of raggedy. She probably looked like a poor person, making her poverty fairly obvious. But he also happened to notice here that she, what she drops into the treasury. Now, this woman, it says in the text, was a widow, okay? meaning that if she was not remarried, if she did not have any sons, she had very few ways of making money. And therefore, it says that she only put in two small copper coins, according to verse 42, that were only worth a fraction of a penny. These two coins were called lepta, lepta. They were worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Many of you know that a, a denarius, it was the common daily wage. Okay, A denarii is plural. A denarius was singular. It's the, it's the average wage for a day's labor. Okay, Now, it, it, just to make it easy for math here. If you compare that today, you worked eight hours, eight bucks an hour, that would be $64. Therefore, that'd be like having $1 in today's world. Okay, There it says it wasn't worth a penny. But in today's world, it's like having a buck. Well, that's not a whole lot. But how much did she give? She gave all of it. It might be a lot more money if you have, that's all you got's a buck, but it says she gave all of it. And then verses 43 and 44 says, Jesus told the disciples, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Now, as far as percentages go, it says she put in more than all of the others. Okay? Now, in reality, though, it really wasn't about percentages, was it? Now, it had nothing to do with that. It just says she gave all she had. That was her choice. She wasn't forced to. Nowhere in the text that says you have to do that. She chose to give all that she had. The wealthy, verse 44 says, gave out of their wealth which, of course, doesn't cost them very much, okay? It's almost like if you happen to see somebody write a check to Discover for, let's just say, $25,000, you might say, wow, somebody wrote a check for $25,000? But listen, if they're worth several million, they probably wouldn't even miss that, okay? But then it says that she, out of her poverty, gave all that she had. That, my friend, is someone who gave from the heart. See, it wasn't the calculator. It wasn't a percentage. It wasn't, say, what am I supposed to do with an attitude? That's somebody who gave from the heart. It's not somebody who says, come on, man, I can't afford it. Even though it was, it was pittance when it came to the actual amount, 
It was huge when measured by her attitude, what I call a heart attitude. It was huge. What's going on inside was, was huge. See, that woman gave what we would call sacrificially. She completely entrusted herself to God to provide for her needs. God, I'm sure, has done it before. And she's trusting that God will do it again. The problem, folks, is that today's church doesn't even know what the word sacrifice means. Seriously, they don't. They don't know what the word sacrifice even means. Sacrifice costs us something. Okay? It's being willing to give something, to give something up, not just because it's our responsibility, but because we love God, because we love his word, because we love his people, we love the church, and we want to support what it does. Once again, it doesn't matter. This is not about beating people up or whatever at Discover Church. You can leave this church and go to another church. God's word is still the same. Nothing changes. Our attitude in giving is what's most important to God. It's not a legalistic rule about how much to give. You see, God watches what we give and not only cares about our gifts to him, but the manner in which we offer them to him. Do we write, them, do we write a check grudgingly? Do we, do, we, do we act like if we put cash into the bin that we got stick them on our hands and just can't let it, we just, just can't get it out of my hand? We just have a hard time doing that? God knows these things. God knows our attitude toward giving. Folks, only you can make the decision in, in, in this. You're a born-again believer. You're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. This is the life that you live. And you've got to find out or figure out what's more important. Is it your lifestyle or is it the local church? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying take every penny you have after that and give it to the church. But for some people, you know, well, I don't want to go lower because they just automatically assume that if they give the church some money, they're going to have to live a lower standard. But if you're not giving to the Lord right now, I would simply challenge you to start by making a commitment. It's just that simple. We can go through many more scriptures, but you probably don't want to sit here and listen to me today. But here's your commitment. Give something faithfully and consistently. Consistently is just what it says. Be consistent. Don't give every few months just for kicks, right? Oh, I feel guilty. I'm going to throw $10 into the box. You give consistently. And also give faithfully. Faithfully is simply based, means based on how much God has blessed you. That's it. It's not a number. It's not a, it's not a percentage. It's what you in your heart want to give. If that is a tithe, great. But do be it faithful. Let me just put it this way. If, you make, if, you, if your family makes 100 grand a year and you're throwing 20 bucks into the plate, that is not being faithful. We've all, we've all been to many churches in our lives and we, we see that kind of stuff. You know, somebody throws those 10 bucks in there or 20 bucks. And I don't, we don't know everybody's store. I get it. But you're looking at them going, hmm. You do have to wonder. 
But folks, listen, God's not looking for your wallet. He's looking for your heart. That's the key. God wants your heart. Not just say, give me your money. God doesn't need your money. He's God. But he does want your heart. And if he has your heart, he will have your wallet. He'll have your life. And part of that is a desire to support the local church. So our time today has been about money and the church. I want you to know it's not been about how much. It's not about an exact percentage. But ultimately, it's allowing the word of God, like any text that we study, it's allowing the word of God to penetrate your heart when you see that it is your responsibility and mine, every single Christian, and then between you and the Lord, see what he has for you to give to the local church. That's the key. And it all comes from your heart. If you want to know where someone is spiritually speaking, look at their checkbook. Look at their wallet. Look how they spend money. You'll see where they're at spiritually speaking. It doesn't mean you're going to, they give 50% of their money to the church. That would, that's very odd. I'm sure somebody does. But you want to know where people are at spiritually? Look at how they spend their money. And look at how much money they do to support the church. But I challenge you to think about that. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to get a new building or I'm trying to get a raise or, uh, or, or anything else. This sermon is no different than any other sermon. It's just a reminder that we have to obey the word of God. And this is one of those subject matters that I do speak on once in a while simply because this is an issue in the church today, Period because people don't want to release their money. I worked hard, I made that. They'd rather come here and hope somebody else does it. And that's the biggest problem we have today. Let somebody else do it. Let somebody else volunteer. I'll wait for somebody else to sign up, somebody else to put in a big check. That way the church can do this and this and this and this and this and I don't have to give. Don't let that be one of you. This is an issue between you and the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you, Lord, that uh, this is a subject matter that applies. And something really we can, some churches probably need to speak on this all the time because there are so many churches, Lord, that are struggling. So many churches that are being faithful with their money. They're not overspending, but they just can't get the people to support, even to pay the mortgage and the electricity and the curriculum for the kids. Lord, we pray that we would recognize that we are the church, and therefore, it's our responsibility to support the church. Lord, help us to realize that as much as, I'm going to guess here, every one of us probably despise a certain form of welfare because we know it's been taken advantage of. So many people in our country choose to not to work. They choose not to do anything so they can run to their mailbox the first of every month and get a check because everybody else went to work instead. Lord, that's the same application as it comes to the church. May our hearts never be that way. May we want to support what the church does and just recognize, not just as a form of worship, but that it takes money. Everything we do, every chair, the electricity, it doesn't matter what it is, it all takes money. And so, Lord, help us to, to give in worship, to give in thanks, to give in appreciation for how much you have given to us. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.